0: Welcome to the second episode of Block, Stock and Barrel. My name is Ashley and today for our second episode, we have Tom Manner from R3 and he's here to talk to us about building consortiums and the work that they are doing at R3. So Tom Manner is R3's solution architect for the APAC region. Uh, He's based in Singapore and he is responsible for translating clients' functional and non-functional business and technical requirements into a solution design. So in addition to the architecture work that he's doing, he also speaks frequently at blockchain industry conferences. He's also a technical ambassador in Asia for blockchain and cryptocurrency technology meetups. So before we get into the work that you're doing at R3, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you started um, your journey into blockchain, what got you interested, and what excites you about DLT or blockchain.
1: Sure. Um, thank you for having me here, Ashley. Um, uh, great view from your office. By the way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is all me. I'm like, glad you created it for me. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's just a <laughs> virtual reality screen.
0: Yeah, this will turn off immediately after.
1: <laughs> uh, so uh, so what got me into blockchain? Um, so I had a long career at IBM. Um, I joined a startup out of college, uh, from Carnegie Mellon. Um, and that startup was involved with uh, transactions, uh, distributed transactions, a company called Transart. Um, IBM had the rights to that company and eventually took us over and absorbed us. And at that time, in the mid-90s, this was in an era um, where things like Corva and DCE were uh, the prevalent technologies, which are, of course, long gone. Um, and at that point, we saw J2E coming, um, the whole Java uh, wave in the late 90s. So when IBM absorbed us, I came into IBM um, and quickly shifted gears. I was living in New York City, Decided to join the team in New York. We started supporting banks on Java J2E applications. Um, and eventually I went to a worldwide role, um, uh, mostly doing the middleware of IBM's portfolio, uh, the WebSphere brand, and a couple other related technologies. Um, fast forward to uh, a couple of years ago, and um, uh, a good friend of mine who works out at one of the IBM labs in uh, London gave me the heads up that uh, we were looking at this new technology called blockchain. Mind you, I'd heard of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, I didn't do anything in it, um, didn't really, wasn't aware of it, it didn't affect me whatsoever. But the fact that IBM was now kind of taking a look at this, this was around 2015 or so, um, got me curious. And we had a demo um, internally at IBM where it was using Ripple to settle Swift transactions and tie it into what was then called our message broker product, it was Enterprise Messaging. So basically, send a message from an application and actually do a swift payment over Ripple. And that was actually a really interesting demo. Um, and that's kind of what got me intrigued into blockchain, by blockchain. Um, and then what really lit the fire was, as um, I was discussing this with some of my IBM colleagues, Somebody mentioned a book um, actually written by this uh, Latin American economist named uh, Romano de Soto. Um, And if I remember correctly, it's The Mystery of Capital. Um, But in the book, he basically argued that, for example, in developing nations, if you could immutably record things like land transactions and who owns that land. Um, So if a family, a farming family, has been on that plot for generations, but there's no actual record of that. If suddenly you could create that record and have that recognized legally and financially, then suddenly you're creating wealth out of nothing. And that was a really interesting, intriguing argument. And the fact that you could use a technology to do something like that was itself interesting. And as we delve more into the blockchain use cases, it really became obvious that, for example, in supply chain and trade finance, I could eliminate middlemen. I could have farmers directly um, sell their goods on an open marketplace and use a blockchain for recording and settling those transactions. So those were really powerful ideas, and that got me intrigued. It's much more interesting than just messaging and j 2 e applications, things like that. So throughout 2015, 2016, I really um, doubled down on blockchain. At this point, um, IBM helped launch Hyperledger. Fabric 0.6 was coming out, was ga um, I ran a couple pilots and did training on uh, Fabric, and then I got laid off. Um, because that's the only way IBM could balance its books these days is like off its people. So I got whacked, um, as did a lot of my colleagues. But fortunately, because I had been immersed in blockchain, I got picked up by R3. So that's my story, and I'm standing, um, standing behind that.
0: All right. Interesting. So how has the transition been like from Hyperledger to Corda? To Corda? Yeah. Um, so
1: True. two things. One, of course, is going from a... Uh, massive scale company, uh, where half the population of the earth works for this company, Uh, back to a startup. So I started a startup, um, came to IBM, now I'm back at a startup. So the circle of life is complete for me. So there's that aspect, it's going back to a startup which uh, is much more energetic, uh, much more vivacious, and more importantly, it's just focused on blockchain, blockchain related technologies. Um, I don't have to really worry about a full portfolio. So there's that aspect. And then, uh, itself, I've had a couple clients and even some folks at partners like Microsoft describe it as elegant, which is an interesting way of putting it. But they, in essence, they're saying it's very well designed. And we can talk about that in a moment. But going from fabric, which frankly is very difficult to use, um, and to create an application to something like Corda, where it's very well thought out and forces me logically to develop an application architecture, um, that actually makes sense in some ways. I just find it much easier to use. And I'm not just shilling corded, I think it's just uh, much easier to use in Epicard. Uh, again, we could talk about that in a moment. But even anecdotally, some of the feedback we get from clients is once they've shifted from something like coding in Solidity or uh, Go Lang for fabric mm-hmm. to uh, the corded design, they said uh, once you get over that initial learning curve, we're much, much more efficient. More importantly, we can onboard new developers in about a month as opposed to, say, three to six months and actually have them be productive. So from that standpoint, uh, it's been much easier to use this kind of blockchain or distributed ledger technology. Um, uh, so that's kind of been the big difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit more about R3, Corda, the Corda Foundation. There are lots of different like concepts that you have to be familiar with when you're learning a bit more. So could you tell us a little bit more about what R3 is about and how did it start?
1: So R3 began life uh, essentially doing research on behalf of banks and financials in New York um, around this cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. So we're talking 2015 or so. And we ran, obviously before I came on board, but um, we were running pilots and projects um, and writing white papers around Ethereum, around fabric, around cryptocurrencies in general, is this something that banks and financials should be paying attention to? Is this something that might be of use? The more we thought about it, the more we decided, yes, this is true, however, um, the way that these blockchains are currently designed is not probably going to be quite suitable for uh, the banking and financial industries in particular. And Ethereum, it's pretty obvious, it's public, it's uh, permissionless, it's anonymous, so that's never gonna work for a company that has KYC and AML requirements. In the case of Fabric, the problem we saw, or that we felt was, um, it's still a traditional blockchain in the sense that we package a bunch of transactions. Once we've reached consensus on them, we've packaged a bunch of transactions into a block, hash that block onto a chain, and everyone receives a copy of that. If I'm Citibank, Why should my transactional history be sitting on DBS's node, for example, or MUFG, especially if I've not done a transaction with them? So on the one hand, yeah, it's encrypted. I can't necessarily access that data. On the other hand, again, my data is sitting on somebody else's node, and then um, maybe eventually they could crack that encryption or quantum computing, things like that. Uh, so, we decided to why don't we just go back to the drawing board and build something with privacy in mind because that's going to be key for the enterprise. And that was the genesis of Corda. Um, very simply, Corda emphasizes privacy. If Tom and Ashley do a transaction, there's no need for Lauren to receive a copy of that unless we decide that he should see a copy. See a copy. Maybe he's a regulator, maybe he's uh, an auditor. Uh, but otherwise, transactions are private out of the box, Um, that is the foremost difference between Corda and the other platforms. Um, That means technically we are not a blockchain, we're not creating blocks, we're not creating a single global state, global chain. Um, My ledger is subjective, it only has the transactions I do, just as yours is subjective. So if you and Lauren do a transaction, I don't see that. It's on your ledger and Lauren's ledger, not on my ledger. The other key thing that we did, again, knowing that we were focused on the enterprise, Was we reused existing technology as much as possible. So things like uh, we use JVM-based languages, Java, uh, Kotlin, Scala. We use messaging for uh, like message queues, queue managers for all the communication. We use relational databases for storage of the ledger, Um, and then finally the contracts. When you talk about writing a Uh, Dapp in Fabric or in Ethereum, you're essentially talking about writing a smart contract. And as the Ethereum guys are fond of saying, code is law. Um, In our case, again, knowing that we were serving the enterprise, our contracts are really meant to be A, very deterministic, they come out to be true or false, either you do a transaction or you don't do a transaction, and B, have some legal basis. So that you can actually uh, hash, for example, a true legal contract, um, legal pros. To the transaction such that actually if you dispute our transaction, we can have it adjudicated in the court of law against this. So if I wrote some buggy Java, as I tend to do, we can go back to the actual legal document and say this is what should have happened legally, financially, and have this be adjudicated. Those are kind of the key differences that we built into the Again, starting with banks and financials in mind, but as it turns out, if you meet their stringent requirements, a lot of other industries actually like that we've been able to expand well beyond the financial base.
0: So some examples of these would be supply chain or like could you tell us what other types of industries? Sure,
1: um, surprisingly insurance has emerged as a very, very big one for us and at least two different insurance consortiums um, actually pivoted away from Fabric to uh, to Corda, uh, B3I and mm-hmm. uh, the Risk Block Alliance. So um, those are very key because that represents several dozen companies, actually. So insurance has been, has emerged as a very big one for us. We're almost the standard um, in insurance. Uh, trade finance, mm-hmm. um, there are a couple other interesting things going on in trade finance, like WeTrade, TradeLens, um, trade Congo, but uh, Voltron and Marco Polo, arguably, are the two large ones, um, and both of those are built on Corda. Um, we're adding new members every day. Um, supply chain has emerged track and trace provenance, because um, we've partnered with a couple of companies that will have, say, track and trace technology, either RFID kinds of technology, or even molecular marking, like chemical marking of, uh, say, parts or other goods, um, and recording that on our blockchain. Healthcare yeah. has, has started to emerge as well. We've been talking to governments, and uh, honestly, what's been interesting, and we could talk at length about this, you know, It'll get me blattering on all the rest of the day. It's digital assets. So with the uh, the implosion of ICOs, um, suddenly it became acceptable to start talking about digitized assets and then security-backed tokens and things like that um, in a business context, not just for raising capital. And actually, I want you to buy my Tom Coin because then I can buy my Lamborghini. No, rather, let's maybe I create a token that represents. Uh, not only the value of gold, so it's a gold-backed token, but maybe it's even a legal claim to the physical gold. We have a partner that's doing that for institutional gold trade, uh, digitizing commodities like um, uh, uh, agricultural products or manufactured products or coal, digitizing energy, for example, representing uh, tokenized kilowatts of power, just so for purposes of liquidity, velocity, transparency. So. Digital assets has really emerged as a very big area for us, and one of the, the key um, opportunities that uh, that we won was with the Swiss Stock Exchange, who are now building uh, an entire digital exchange on Corda, uh, and that will be the, kind of their next iteration of a trading platform, which is which is really a powerful idea.
0: Oh, it's really cool that to see all like so much adoption across all these different industries. So, actually, do you find that there is a difference in the kinds of kinds of types of requirements from enterprises and governments? Because I do, you do work with these two different types of bodies that both also face a lot of issues in terms of privacy and regulation. But are there key differences, or are they kind of similar in terms of what they require?
1: Uh, good question. Well, the key difference is. Uh, uh, private companies will actually spend money and governments won't. Well, so, To actually try and develop a sales opportunity with the government, good luck. Um, so the, never mind that it's a really difficult sales cycle. That aside, I would say that there's two broad use cases. One is particular to central banks. So, for example, when you talk about government, um, people forget about the fact that each country has its own banking system. So we've had a number... of of uh, clients and also projects uh, in the central bank uh, space, central bank digital cash, um, maybe uh, payments between the corporate banks or commercial banks, maybe cross-border payments, so for example, uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore has Project Ubin. uh Bank of Canada has Project Jasper, uh, uh, Bank of Thailand has Project Intanon. Uh, we've been involved with all of these. Uh, so that's one example of government. Um, and actually, they're the ones probably furthest ahead. Now, secondarily, we've had some discussions with individual departments within governments, say, Department of Taxation, Department of Land Registration. Um, and those use cases are very particular. So we, we're doing a project now um, where we actually kind of won the opportunity with uh, Her Majesty's Land Registry in the UK. So they will use uh, something like Corda not necessarily as the registry of record, um, but rather as part of the process for doing the land registration um, amongst all the different counterparties that are involved with, say, the transfer of a title or whatever. I've had some conversations with various government entities around fraud prevention, say, taxation or in procurement. So those are much smaller use cases, say, compared to central bank digital cash. Um, and again, it's, uh, with the government, they're a lot slower um, mm-hmm. in terms of getting anything done. So they might see, you can have a design or a whiteboard session with them. They'll see the value of it. Uh, but for them to reach, no pun intended, for them to reach a consensus and actually decide to do something tends to take a lot longer than it does in the private sector. No surprise there.
0: Talking about consensus, could you talk a little <laughs> bit more about, that's a bit of a weird jump, but since you mentioned the word which um, uh,
1: consensus? The company consensus? The conference consensus? in blockchain
0: in Corda <laughs> specifically. So in Corda,
1: <laughs> yes, um, because we're private permission blockchain, we don't have to worry about things like proof of work, proof yes. of stake, which is a big advantage to us. That buys us a lot in terms of uh, performance. Rather, consensus—the way we handle consensus in Corda—there's um, really two different ways. One is How do Tom and Ashley reach consensus on a transaction? Um, Normally, in a a blockchain, it has to be systemic. You know, across the the various uh, participants—not even the participants, the various uh, members in the business network—kind of have to agree that yes, we're going to allow this transaction onto the global chain. In our case, we're you and I are just evaluating the terms of the contract. Um, So if I'm if I'm going to sell you a bond, for example then we're talking about transferring the bond from me to you and you sending a payment from you to me. Um, So in essence, we're changing trading two different assets. Mm -hmm. We're trading the bond asset, we're trading a cash asset. Yes. Um, We can have a contract associated with each of those, the bond asset, the cash asset, that we do handle that as an atomic transaction, but we evaluate those two contracts. And the cash contract might be very simple, it might just say, does Ashley have the cash? Yes, then this is a valid transaction. In the case of the bond, maybe we have to meet five different conditions under mm-hmm. which we will transfer that bond. But in both cases in Corda, we'll treat that as an atomic transaction where we evaluate both of those contracts. As long as we pass those contracts and we validate them, we you and I will do that transaction. Uh, so in essence, that's one form of consensus. We evaluate the contract between us uh, or the various contracts between us we just being the
0: the two participants. Right. Okay.
1: And then the other thing every blockchain has to do is account for double spend. So how do we prevent uh, Ashley from spending that same digital cash, both with Tom and then maybe with Eugene or Lauren? Um, And there we have what's called a uniqueness service, um, or uh, it's a bit of a misnomer, but we also call it a notary service that tends to confuse people. So we stick with uniqueness. But basically that service guarantees actually has not spent this digital cash elsewhere. So there is also that form of consensus that it, and when I say consensus, really, it's an evaluation just to ensure that you haven't done a double spend, but it tends to be a pool of servers and they have mm-hmm. to reach consensus that yes, uh, this is not a double spend.
0: And from like right now, from what I understand for the notary service, it is purely just, what you guys offer is probably just like a single notary service set, right? And there was like some kind of discussions for um, notary pools that are right. experimental. Well,
1: uh, so that's on two different levels. One, On the one level, when I say a notary, that actually means one to n number of machines. Mm-hmm. So I could call this notary service the chain stack notary service, for example. But I don't want that to be a single point of failure. So I had, need to have multiple machines. And those machines um, also have to pull their data. Like we know... What states? Because we use the UTXO model, we say uh, we're spending states, uh, we're consuming states, and we have to be keep track of which ones have been spent or u- utilized. So that, for example, if you've already spent your cash state, we want to be sure that you know check the double spend and that your transaction is still unique. But that's a pool of machines that need to do that, share that data. Now, secondarily, I can have multiple notaries in a network. And I might do that for maybe performance reasons, um, where, uh, you know, for example, normally with, not to go too far into the technical weeds, but we have a concept of a non-validating notary, which basically checks the input states um, and verifies that that's an unbroken chain and those are all unique. But I can also have a validating notary, um, which is much more uh, time consuming, but it will validate the entire transaction tree in the contents of the transaction. So it's less private, but it's much more exhaustive. Mm-hmm. What I might do is have two different notaries, chain stack A notary and chain stack B notary. One is validating, the other one is non-validating. Why would I do that? Well, maybe for really high value transactions, I wanna do the full validation of the entire transaction tree and contents of the transaction. Even though it, it might be a privacy issue, nevertheless, I wanna be exhaustive in that validation. It could also be the case when you start talking about networks of networks, um, and I'm sure we'll touch upon that in a moment, but then I can offer notary services. So I'm providing a service in the quarter network that if you want to do a cross-network transaction, I can
0: notarize that transaction for you. So who can run these services? Or is it all run by yes. Corda?
1: Yeah. Um, well, it would all be, it obviously has to be a Corda node, but at this point, the at least for the quarter network, so if I'm... I have the option of setting up either a private network where it's just maybe um, chain stack and its clients. And so I have no intention of ever plugging into another network. That's fine. You have clients who do that. Um, but one of the powers uh, or one of the, the uh, selling points of Corda is that ability to plug into other Corda networks and have assets flow from one network to another network. Again, because of the data model that we use, security model that we do use, this is possible. Um, very difficult to do this, say, in Fabric and have an asset flow from one Fabric network to another one. Ethereum does it by default because it's a global network. So what we've done um, is we've created an independent body called the Corda Foundation, um, which administers or governs what will be the global Corda network of networks. Uh, and so that, I, for example, if I have a digital cash network, Um, between a central bank and commercial banks, maybe I can have that cash flow into a trade finance network um, and have that cash be an asset flowing from one network to another one, or supply chain network where shipments are flowing into a trade finance network or vice versa. And so in order to do that, basically I have to sign up to the Quarta Foundation and I get a key that's derived from the Quarta Foundation master key. So it's really having a key that's derived from that kind of Adam and Eve key, that master key that allows me for your, your network to talk to my network. Um, Cause that, that's the only way you can understand one another's encryptions. So going back to your question about the notary, if I do a standalone network by on my own, I have to spin up my own notary, mm-hmm. which is fine. It's not really a big deal. Yeah. If I'm doing, um, if I'm plugging into the global network, well, I can notarize my local transaction. So I'm still running the chain stack network and validating my, um, Transactions with my local partners, but the moment I want to need to talk to another network, I need to have a notary that understands uh, data assets between the two networks. So that might be a notary, for example, that's run by the Corda Foundation, um, which is currently the uh, uh, the case today. But we envision down the road that there might be uh, uh, folks that are participating in the Corda uh, Foundation network the Corda network who might offer notarization as a service and then maybe you pay per transaction to have that notarized on that service so mm-hmm. that you don't have to. But that um, thats I don't believe that's the case today. That's what we believe is coming.
0: Okay so could you talk a little bit more about the Korda foundation?
1: Sure um, the Korda foundation was launched uh, again as an independent body. It's governed out of the Netherlands because um, there's some jurisdictional way that the Netherlands does things like independent bodies. Um, I, I would have to go back and talk to the folks at London. <laughs> I forget the story. But uh, nevertheless, it's an independent body uh, that basically runs the governance of the Corda network, uh, the network of networks. Um, and again, uh, anybody who joins doesn't necessarily have to plug into anything. Um, we have clients who said, yeah, this might be something I want to do down the road, two or three years down the road. but. Mm-hmm. Um, give me the key now, um, and I'll use that to generate my keys locally on my network, such that when I'm ready to join, plug into other networks, I'm already encrypted the right way, or I already have a key that understands the other keys. So, and we made the the cost of joining actually fairly low. Um, I think it's $1,000. It basically covers administrative costs. So, um, and again, um, a... In essence, a network could still be standalone. They just happen to be ready to plug into the global Corda network if and when if they want to. Um, if you start off standalone and then decide down the road you want to join the Corda network, that's difficult to do because you've already encrypted all your mm-hmm. transactions with your own key. So um, there are probably ways to do it. You probably have to reissue all of your assets with the new key. Um, there, but there's no easy data migration path for that. So um, we encourage people say, so if you think at some point down the road you might want to do this, just go ahead and join the Quarter Foundation, um, get your key and you can still be standalone until you're ready to one day join that network.
0: So when you talk about other governance issues that the Quarter Foundation works on, do you mean like also coming off like operability standards? or?
1: That's a good question. Um, Actually, you're full of good questions this morning. Um,
0: I copied it from someone. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: um, so actually, uh, one of my former colleagues at IBM, uh, Jerry Cuomo, uh, has a really great quote where he, he essentially points out that uh, the hard thing about blockchain is not the technology. The technology, even with something difficult like Robert, um still in the end is not that hard. If I want to build a blockchain-based uh, business network, I can do it. Um, the hard part is the governance and how the value of blockchain really comes from participants who don't necessarily trust one another. If I'm just doing all chain stack stuff, I'll just use a central database and I'll need a blockchain. The moment I need to go outside of my organization across security boundaries, that's where blockchain makes sense. But how do you get people to join your network? How do you get them to sit down at the table and work out this governance? Who's going to run the actual network? So like in the case of Ethereum, it's a public network product. But in the case of something like Fabric or Corda, somebody needs to govern that network. Um, So that's where a lot of the work comes in. So even things like the trade finance projects like uh, Marco Polo or Voltron will spend most of the work or most of the effort on the governance. Um, So to some extent, something like the Corda Foundation takes some of that away, takes some of that burden away. But nevertheless, even with your own private network, let's say uh, you have the chain stack uh, supply chain network with your vendors, um, you have to work out uh, that governance of how are we going to communicate, who's going to run the notaries, what data standards are we going to uh, ascribe to, um, which version of the application? Uh, if we do some changes to the application, you all have to upgrade. Uh, so that governance. Um, around just the running the network itself and the day-to-day operations, uh, the DevOps aspect, um, are actually really significant challenges, Um, again, because you're talking about people that don't sit in the same room on any given day. So uh, we're doing a lot of work in that space to to try and help with those kinds of processes, the DevOps, um, the security aspects, uh, the promotion of new applications, things like that. but in the end, somebody has to do a lot of that hard work. Um, I know you guys are working on some solutions in that space that uh, I think actually are going to be very key uh, for people that are trying to run networks like this in production.
0: Okay, no, I really liked how you talked about the importance of governance, uh, especially when trying to build ecosystems and consortiums. I think a lot of people in the blockchain space are quite skeptical about the whole concept in general, but and they've also seen all these large companies saying, oh, I'll join this XX blockchain-based consortium. But then that's literally the only blockchain-based activity that they they do. Like, they just join a consortium and nothing happens. But right. for, for, for some reason, a lot of the big projects that are being built on Corda seem to have a lot of traction and activity. So what are you guys doing differently? Because you talk about, yeah, like, their technology is difficult, but the governance is a universal problem for right. any type of consortium, regardless of which technology it's being built on. So what are you guys doing different and why is it that so many companies are-
1: I think we had a bit of an advantage in the sense that, um, not that we were a consortium, but R3, um, again, uh, as I mentioned, we began life as sort of a research company and members would join R3 in order to have access to our research. So, and they also were the ones who fed the requirements to us for what would be needed in something like a, a court, like an enterprise watching. So we've had that advantage where we've had to work with, not quite a consortium model, but multiple stakeholders, um, multiple people who had vested interests in what we were doing, what we were building. Um, and then we had members, for example, who in the end didn't, weren't happy with it, like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. Um, who eventually exited R3. Um, so again, that's that shows that you're not going to please everyone. Um, to some extent, it's like the proverbial herding of cats. Um, so you do your best to try and satisfy everyone. Um, in the end, to your point, like a lot of people will join uh, a, a blockchain network or blockchain consortium, and maybe not sure what to expect or what value they're going to see from it. So um, that's certainly one of the uh, lessons I try to impart on clients when I talk to them is, uh, for example, if you're going to run a blockchain pilot, you have to have some measurables of how valuable this was. Did we see um, cost savings? Did we see, did we open new revenue channels? Um, What was the value for us running blockchain? Um, I know a number of folks have run pilots where in the end they said, yeah, it was a su- su- successful pilot, but we didn't necessarily think it was better than the process we have in place. That's a fair assessment. Um, it may just be the case that whatever business processes they have, they're, they're fine. They don't necessarily have to do a blockchain. I think the other key thing is um, a lot of people are really hung up on the term blockchain, both in a good way and a bad way. The good way being, of course, that oh, blockchain is sexy, I mentioned blockchain when I'm in a singles bar, all the girls go crazy. So that sort of thing. But then those are the sorts of people who do pilots for the sake of doing pilots. You know, if you put blockchain in the contract, then great, I'll sign them. Uh, on the flip side, you have people say, please don't mention the word blockchain because I, right away I think ICOs, I think cryptocurrency, um, and I say I think scams and pyramid schemes. So there's that aspect to it. I think we're starting to get to a point, and ideally to a point, where you shouldn't be mentioning blockchain, you should be talking about a solution. So it's not so much uh, I'm doing a blockchain project, it's more I'm doing the supply chain solution, I'm doing a healthcare insurance solution, I'm doing a trade finance solution. It just happens to use blockchain under the covers. Blockchain should just be plumbing at the end of the day. Um, Digital assets is a little bit different because people connect it to cryptocurrency. But nevertheless, I think you'll get to a point where if we're talking about uh, coins and tokens, who cares what blockchain technology is under the covers? It should be Corda, of course. But um, in the end, I'm more interested in a, uh, say, digital assets, uh, capital markets kind of solution. I don't care that it's a blockchain per se. So I think that's, you'll know that blockchain has really arrived when we stop talking about it, when we just start talking about the stuff that's built on top of the blockchain.
0: And what are some, like personally to you, what are some of the most like interesting solutions or applications being built on Corda? Apart from the ones, unless they are the ones that you mentioned previously.
1: <laughs> well, they're definitely the ones I mentioned previously. <laughs> um, well, we're certainly not building any Crypto Kitties. Uh, Dang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i no, you're disappointed in that. Um, no, instead we're calling them Corda Kitties. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned, the digital assets is a really interesting new space. The, um, uh, my colleague Anthony Lewis here in Singapore um, heads up a lot of the work that we do in that space, and he, he literally can't keep up with the requests that are coming in. So people are really thinking about the digital asset space in new and interesting ways. Here. And you know, to some extent, my concern is, okay, we'll start tokenizing everything. Just for the sake of tokenizing, you know, what is the real business value of creating a token or a coin? Uh, but nevertheless, there are a lot of interesting or compelling use cases coming out in this space, um, and I, I think we have we barely scratched the surface there. Uh, again, I mentioned things like insurance, and uh, for example, we're working on a project in uh, around tea growing where it's using IoT devices like drones and sensors to feed data, and that will allow, not only just uh, for assessing, say, the health of the crop and things like that, but also the risk for insurance, such that, for example, if the data suggests that um, we have drought conditions, or, you know, conversely, too much rain, or maybe a monsoon is coming, um, that might affect the insurance that's underwriting the crop, Um, and, what the yield is going to be and what the value, when it gets in the marketplace. So that's something you can do real-time adjustments, um, again, both to the value to the retail chain, uh, supply chain, um, and then also the insurance itself, the insurance underwriting. Um, and this is uh, data that's getting recorded on a blockchain on uh, Corda. So to me, that's something that's a really interesting use case. Uh, we're also working with another company in Africa, where it's kind of, um, uh, the Small insurance—that is, how do I how do I insure people who aren't insured, who um, or, or who can't pay the dividend, or the premiums, and so forth. So it's a project to actually get insurance into the hands of people who have otherwise difficulty acquiring insurance. Um, and again, they're using the blockchain for all the parties that are involved in the insurance in the insurance space.
0: And this is peer-to-peer based on. Uh,
1: not, not necessarily peer to peer in the sense that for example you would be paying for my insurance but it would be a way for example to uh, maybe spread the risk uh, that if I'm going to insure Ashley um, rather than one company just uh, doing that maybe it's multiple companies just putting in small amount so minimize the risk for any one company mm-hmm. um, or their exposure okay. and I'm, in that case I'm much more willing to loan you know you five dollars for insurance rather than five thousand dollars that's a bit of an overstatement but um uh those are uh, examples of kind of interesting stuff at least going on insurance uh, that i've been working on um i was just recently in the philippines uh, last week in mindanao uh looking at coffee supply chain um and uh working with a bank there to possibly eliminate middlemen um such that um the farmers who are actually growing the coffee, the indigenous peoples who are growing the coffee, would actually sell direct to the marketplace. Um, and they want to use the blockchain both for um, trying to eliminate as much overhead as possible in the supply chain, but then also raise the value of the coffee itself by saying, This particular coffee we will test was grown in this particular mountain place and picked by hand by um, certain people or by this tribe or whatever so that I can feel that um, this particular bag of coffee has a value that's actually higher than if I bought Nescafe, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, then to have that money flow directly to the tribe rather than going through some markups um, from middlemen. So that's, again, a possibility of using blockchain for um, economic value in, in a way that people had not really thought of before.
0: Yeah, I think that would be really interesting, like a blockchain powered Tribe. Oh, it's just, it's just like a like a like. I'm just imagining the headline, the press yeah, release kind yeah, of. to they're,
1: they're <laughs> gonna change the name of the tribe to Korda but you know they're, they're
0: not done with that. I totally understand. <laughs> it is totally I, fair know, that they are not up for it. And you know
1: what? I'm not even a coffee drinker, and that was pretty damn good coffee.
0: <laughs> oh okay. Wow. Well, yeah, saying. I was very impressed. Okay, so I think that's that's really really interesting, especially like how you're moving, I mean, you, you were talking a lot about um, a lot of finance, digital assets based and then also with the supply chain and the coffee. Um, yeah, and how, how do you think that this kind of differs from the other blockchain-based supply chain solutions that exist, so, like there was um, the one by IBM, which the right. whole the, mega uh, the thing. The Walmart. Yes, that mm-hmm. one. The
1: Walmart example. Yeah. Well, for starters, uh, I don't know, Corda, we talked to indigenous tribes Score score one the zero. The only difference. Yeah, our no difference. Yeah. Their yeah. um, yeah, coffee's better than their coffee. Um, yeah, you know, for things like provenance, that's actually fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I can do that on probably any blockchain. Uh, obviously, with something like Corda, it's private permissioned. Um, and in fact, when I was talking to the bank that we were working with. Um, they actually had done a lot of work on Ethereum before, um, and they've also done some Fabric work. And then, so I asked them, you know, why are you selecting Corda for this project? And they said, well, uh, the permission private aspects, um, and then also we just feel that um, you know, the ability to rapidly build something, um, and then also
0: do it at relatively low cost,
1: uh, was a selling point, you know, as opposed to us trying to find some Govind programmers and develop this on Fabric. So um, you know, those are, I suppose, uh, non-functional reasons. It's got nothing to do with the technology per se. It's harder, It's cheaper, it's easier. Um, uh, the design, again, the, the elegance of the design, or what have you. Um, but otherwise, you know, we, have, we, have, we partnered with someone, I think out of California, called Right.io, and basically they're doing the exact same thing as the Walmart model. That is, they'll do track and trace provenance of agricultural goods. Um, using Corda, um, I worked on a project uh, out of China where same thing, track and trace dairy products, and they were putting IoT data. They were collecting uh, a lot of IoT data through the supply chain, such as uh, the the temperature of the dairy products, um, is the cooler working properly, things like that. Uh, and they were asking, does it make sense to put that data on Corda?" and I didn't feel so because I thought, yeah, it's great that the data is immutable, um, but it's just IoT data. I'm, maybe I only care about the overall pattern of, was the refrigeration working the whole time, the supply chain, or notify me when the refrigeration stops or breaks. So I care about events like that. Um, and then there there are blockchains out there like V Chain that are specifically built for IoT data, lots of little data. Um, So maybe you put it on something like V-Chain, or I don't even have to do that. Uh, I could just put it in a data lake and extract the patterns that I care about, and maybe I record the events on a blockchain. But anyway, so they were looking at IoT data, but then also the business aspect of the supply chain. Um, As it goes through the supply chain, from the farm to the trucking company to the storage to the end retailer, things like that. And I argued, why don't you put that data on Corda? You, you have So you have an IoT chain, if you really need it to be a chain, um, and then you have a business supply chain, which um, should be a blockchain if you have multiple counterparties. So that was kind of the, the design that we were going towards. But it really boils down to, does something like IoT data need to be immutable? Or um, well, what do I really want to do with the IoT data? So that's where, going back to your original question, how do we differ from other supply chain? Use cases um, Again, I think all of the blockchains would have to face these same kind of architectural issues. Mm-hmm. Do I care about IoT data? Um, what, what goes
0: off-chain. Right, what yeah. goes
1: off-chain. And yeah, I think that's all I need to say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah so I would like to ask a little bit about, especially because you're so deep into the space and seeing so many different projects across industries mm-hmm. uh, taking place, what kind of challenges do you see or like what more needs to be done in order to make companies more open to the technology? What needs to be done to make it more comfortable for companies to be open to collaboration? Is the, the governing body that you mentioned, the slightly more centralised form of governance kind of crucial in this aspect or developer tools, legal...
1: So this is what I think ChainStack needs to do. To I'm listening, safer- I'm <laughs> listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well you're asking me to solve world hunger and the peace and so forth. Um, yeah, I think um, part of the problem is, for example, if I go to blockchain conferences, you still have a lot of shilling going on as it were. So a lot of people are you know, first of all, they're still pushing their coins. Right? I can't believe that's still happening, but it's still happening. Um, so you have that issue, and I think that confuses the, the marketplace quite a bit. Honestly, I think the whole ICO bubble set back blockchain a couple of years. Um, if that hadn't happened, we'd be, I think, further along. Um, that being said, uh, so it confuses folks in the marketplace. I still very much encounter people who associate blockchain with cryptocurrency. Um, with ICOs, and I'm still getting asked, uh, should I purchase this Ashley coin or not? It's I okay. Say,
0: my my caro asks me for Bitcoin advice, <laughs> and I'm like,
1: yeah. okay. Usually the questions uh, I'll get at Q&As are, which coins would you recommend on you
0: invest in? Oh, no.
1: I say, well, start with the Ashley coin. <laughs> um, so there, there's that. Um, so there's still education that's going on in that space. and. Uh, being an ex ibmer like I am an old middleware guy um, uh, I'll put in context where uh, I downplay blockchain and say it really is just plumbing it's just a distributed database with some unique characteristics to it um, so don't overthink this uh, and then something like a cryptocurrency really is just an application when all said and done it's layered on top of the blockchain then I can remove the cryptocurrency and put some other application on top of that such as insurance or supply chain So that's the education I find I have to do quite often um, and kind of level set everyone. Uh, But blockchain is just the plumbing. What you should really be focusing on is the solution that's on top of it that makes use of the blockchain. The blockchain helps facilitate, uh, make more possible. So the education is a key one. And again, you'll still have people that are really pushing hard that blockchain is the salvation of, the human race so you, you really have to correct for that as well um, beyond that uh, yeah again it's like we've been talking about you level set people on the governance angle and say uh, no matter what solution you're proposing the easy part will be building it, the hard part will be getting people to the table and mm-hmm. working that out so you know, let me be frank with you, you're going to be spending your time on setting up the network and uh, determining with the participants how you do things. Now, if you're lucky, you're somebody like Walmart, where you just dictate. Uh, you're large enough. And you say, if you want to use my network, if you want to be a supplier to me, or if you want to be part of my agrarian uh, agriculture supply chain, then you will do
0: this. But if you are an Amazon tribe, I'm sorry. Just if you are a tribe, <laughs>
1: are you shilling for Amazon? Now? No.
0: Tribe. <laughs> I'm am not sure tribe. I if you're a tribe from Mindanao selling coffee, yeah.
1: Products. So, so in a case like that, who who's going to be the one sponsoring that? Um, there is no one clear uh, overall governance mechanism for something like the say, coffee supply chain uh, coming direct from the chapel. So, um, and then more importantly, you have stakeholders who are will be threatened by this, namely the people who do the markups. Uh, the middlemen really don't do anything other than maybe some transportation and then put a huge markup on it. Uh, so they're going to be threatened by it and they'll, they'll resist it. Um, ideally, and then how, also how do you commercialize it? So if I'm a bank and I want to help sponsor this, how do I work out the commercial such that I will see some economic benefit that justifies my involvement? It isn't just pure altruism. You know, how, how are the stakeholders going to make money?
0: The project, Sorry, that project specifically was ideated by a bank or was it like by a social enterprise type? Uh,
1: combination, primarily a bank. Um, okay. But combination of the bank and the social enterprise. Um, and it's still very early, still very nascent. So mm-hmm. I, I can't say too much about it just yet. Um, it's always possible it may not even happen mm-hmm. um, based on some of the challenges I just got, for example. So... Um, while it's a great idea executing that idea is not the easiest thing to do honestly that's probably the biggest challenge with blockchain. is yeah it sounds great on paper but how do we actually implement this in such a way that i get you and the suppliers or me and the coffee growers and the shippers uh, all on the same page such that we can actually build something
0: just before i wrap up mm-hmm. I, I like to ask this question Uh-oh. um but I, you actually kind of mentioned it a little bit, uh, you, you kind of answered it a bit before, but I just want to ask you for the sake sure, sure.
1: Yes, I'm um, a Sagittarius, thank <laughs>
0: you. <laughs> Noted. Noted. Um, <laughs> what does mass adoption look like to you? Gosh, I thought I answered that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: mass adoption is when we are no longer talking about blockchain, in the same way that, for example, if I talk about, oh, I don't know, um, supply chain uh, solution, I'm not talking about the database we're using because nobody cares about that. They just assume that there's a database in there somewhere. Um, I think eventually we'll get to that point with blockchain. I think we're almost there in fact. Um, but what
0: our, but what's the what more needs to be done to hit that, to get point? To that point? Yeah, or is it just time?
1: Uh, well it's a combination of things. It's the education. Yeah. It's the efforts of Chainstack.
0: <laughs> um, Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs>
1: I think the education is the key one. I, I think it's the normalization of blockchain. Again, if once we get to a tipping point of projects, um, again, at some point, people will stop talking about the blockchain. Now, what you might do is you might talk about networks of networks. Now, I might talk about, I've built a solution, and now I want to plug it into a digital cash or trade finance network. Um, and there, okay, now I do have to care about the plumbing because it has to be core I'm going to do it that way. Um, similarly, like the Quorum folks or the Ethereum folks will have to worry about that. The fabric folks, they have a whole engineering problem around that. Um, but I you know, I imagine what we'll be doing is getting to a point where we're not talking about blockchain. We'll just talk about I need to plug my supply chain solution into a trade finance or digital cash solution and have assets flow back and forth across them.
0: So the responsibility of proper education. How do you think this will happen, or like how do you think people will start to? Well, they'll realize, start by listening
1: to this podcast, right? And,
0: uh, good answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they should also read my colleague Anthony Lewis's book on bitcoins and blockchains. <laughs> You're
0: <laughs> Because, um, sorry, yeah, because it sounds like when, you, when you're when speaking to potential clients or pe- like companies that are working with you, you tend to be the one that's doing all the BTW, it's not cryptocurrencies, this and that. So, like, what?
1: Yeah, I, I, actually, that's a good point. Um, so, for example, I, when I speak at conferences, I, I kind of lay out the exact same themes that I've just laid out today.
0: Um, and then afterward, after I'll do my pitch, I'll have a queue
1: of people who agree with me. Um, and then maybe I'll have some people who disagree with me um, and they're usually the maximalists either cryptocurrency maximalists like Bitcoin or Ethereum or they're public blockchain maximalists like the Ethereum guys um, but nevertheless they'll they'll take a, a different viewpoint and say well blockchain is Bitcoin or blockchain is Ethereum and that's that so they're very religious about it. Um, whereas I'm up there saying blockchain is just plumbing um, what you should be concerned about is what you building, the house that you build on top of the problem. Um, so there's there are different viewpoints on that. Um, I think eventually uh, my viewpoint will win the day um, just because I have a degree in philosophy. He pretended to <laughs> wink. <laughs> I just winked it, actually. uh for those of you who are not in the room. And again, we'll be at a point where we're mostly talking about the solutions, not the underlying technology. Um, and that's... Again, that will require education. I'll require Tom doing a thousand more conferences. Um, but again, I think eventually we we will get to that point. Um, what's slowing it down actually is the cryptocurrency and ICO and stuff because I think that's just and it, that's understandable. I mean, people fixating on that and they associate blockchain with that.
0: So, would it be a relevant question if I asked how how does public blockchain fit into the future of Koda or are they like not incompatible or are they just the, the term public doesn't yeah. really matter
1: we're we're certainly not religious about it we we certainly believe that there